How to Lead a Multi-Generational Team, Age Diversity in the Workplace. Hi, my name is Mike Conoy, Vice President of Marketing at Assure. Uh, and, and this is a really important topic. I, I, I think the whole topic of DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, I, I think sometimes the conversations tend to skew more towards uh, race in, in gender, uh, and, and there's a whole political landscape uh, around these topics today. But I think one of the most important topics that everybody has to address is, is age diversity, right? Um, something like 35% of our workforce today are millennials, uh, and it's a smaller number of Gen Z. But by 2025, I think it's about 25% of the workforce is going to be Gen Z. And, and, and old guys like me can't just say, oh, the younger generation doesn't get it. That's going to be the workforce, right? So, so either we don't get it. Or, or our businesses won't succeed. So I have, have a, a, a fantastic guest today to really uh, unpack this topic. Uh, her, her name is Dr. Eliza Philby. Uh, uh, she's a writer, speaker, consultant who specializes in generational intelligence, helping companies, governments, and services understand generational shifts within politics, society, and the workplace. Eliza received her PhD from the University of Warwick and subsequently taught at King's College London and the University of Renmin in China. Her writing has been published in the Times, Guardian, and Financial Times. This year, she was awarded Europa Forum's 2022 Millennial Leaders Award. Eliza is the author of Fueling Gender Diversity, Unlocking the Next Generation Workplace, and Mind the Gap, Managing a Multi-Generational Workforce in a Post-Pandemic Age. And she hosts her own podcast. Uh, it's called It's All Relative on the Gender Gap. So uh, can't ask for better credentials than that. Welcome to the show, Eliza. <laughs> <laughs> well, what an exhaustive bio. Mike, it's great, great to be on your podcast. What a real pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks so much. So if I can, and I, 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 I think we both of us come from our careers from, from different points of view, right? So when I think of, when I think of uh, uh, age diversity, I remember you know, working for big companies and sitting in seminars, you know, going back you know, 15, 20 years ago where you know, the boomers and the uh, uh, Gen X and the millennials, these were almost kind of like new concepts, but they were, they were kind of like big company concepts. Like, I mean, we, we've all heard the term a war for talent. Well, that was coined by uh, a, a, a guy from McKinsey back in 1997. These were kind of big company concepts, right? And you throw in right. uh, a, a dot-com bubble, you throw in a, a, a war, you throw in some crazy presidential and geopolitical politics and election cycles, uh, a recession or two and a pandemic. And I think so many times we blame those things as the reasons for labor shortages or labor challenges. But here we are post-pandemic with a, I think the latest number in the U.S. is 3.7% unemployment. Um, the reality is this labor shortage has been highly predictable for 30 years, right, based on an aging workforce in birth rates and productivity per headcount for, per GDP by country. We, we've seen this coming and this is kind of here to stay. Mm -hmm. And th this is no longer a big company problem. This is a main street problem, small and mid-sized companies. If you want to have a workforce, you're going to have to compete to hire people and attract people. And that means all people, all sizes, all shapes, all ages, all, all colors, all backgrounds. Uh, so uh, that's kind of the context of why I think this is so critical. Share share your thoughts, unpack well, for me, if you will, why this is so important. Well, I, Mike, I think you've alluded to a really important aspect there, which is obviously there's a demographic crisis, right? In the sense that we are all living in an aging society, unless you're in in Africa, and, and there are problems for business with those changing demographics. Predominantly is we're gonna have to integrate older workers into the workforce that much more. But then there's a bigger story here, which is age diversity and the expansion of a multi-generational workforce, right? So you now have in most organizations, big, small, medium businesses, four generations in the workplace. And that's your baby boomers who are still clinging on to power. There's, there's your Gen Xs who are mostly your C-suite and have reached finally in a kind of Prince Charles-like way, assumed the throne having really been waiting around a long time after the boomers have been holding so much power. And then you've got your millennials and your Gen Zers. And so you have four generations in the workplace, all with different 
ways of communicating, expectations of what work is and its place in people's lives, all different ideas about what work is, what leadership and management looks like, and how where you should do work, how you should do work. So you have a generational tension in businesses now that is only going to get bigger because we may have four generations in the workplace now. We are very soon going to have, if we you know, do not have already, five generations in the workplace. Right. So the right. generational gap is real and is not going away. And in a weird kind of way, we talk about gender diversity. We talk about ethnic diversity being key, not just to progressive businesses, but to successful businesses. Well, hell, age diversity is the same thing because what you need in every business is yes you need that entrepreneurial innovative spirit of youth but you also need that experience that comes with age and actually i think what's we may talk about generational differences within politics right now which feels more profound than i think at any time in history I agree. politics yeah. used to be divided by Politics used to be divided by class. It's now divided by age as much as class. And we feel it in our society. We maybe health, feel it in our families, this real generational gap. And we are feeling it in our businesses. And what I've really sought to do the last two and a half years, helping companies in the midst of a pandemic, where we all had to make the shift very quickly to remote working and now making the shift to hybrid working or remote working long term, is we are actually encountering each other less. And that's causing an even bigger generational gap. Now, within businesses, you really have to understand that generational diversity and appreciate who Gen Z are, who millennials are, who boomers and Gen Xs are, and how they are evolving, because no generation stands still, right? You're confronted with different life stages. Life, you know, takes over. You age, we all age. But it's a very striking stat to say, as, um, as was recently discovered in the survey by Microsoft, you are more likely to be friends at work with someone of a different race or gender than of a different generation. Wow. And I think companies now have a real obligation. It's impacting their bottom line, uh, you know, at the very least, a real obligation to bridge that generational divide because it's costing um, man hours, it's costing productivity, it's creating a corrosive culture of ageism. And it's really something in order to secure the best talent, both young and old, in an aging society and in a time of innovation, you need both old and young. So age diversity is should be a key business aim. Uh, Eliza, I really want to dive into what are some of the challenges between the generations and then, you know, what, what practical advice you'd have for the audience. Uh, most of our most of our listeners and watchers of this show uh, are in small and mid-sized companies. They're they're employers, uh, so mm. this is a really a really central issue to them. But uh, I, I think so much of the messaging, I, I think your background, I kind of shared mine, came out of a kind of big company. I was used to going to conferences where this these things were were, were topics. But but if you're if you're the uh, small business owner, you're a retailer, you have two locations and eighteen employees, you're working. 15 hours a day trying to grow your mm -hmm. business and you're an expert in whatever line of products you carry. You're not, you're not an expert in this sort of thing. You just kind of feel the impact, mm -hmm. right? The, 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 the symptoms of it. Can, mm -hmm. But let's start maybe mm -hmm. with some definitions. Can, can you, so, so you talked about the four, four buckets, boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, you know, get, give us the, the date ranges here. What, what, what makes these groups unique from each other? Right, and 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 remember, these these are these are arbitrary, but actually really important distinctions. That a starting point for understanding your workforce, not an end point. Right, we're not seeking to advocate you go around your workforce and go, oh my god, you're such a boomer. Oh my god, you're such a Gen Xer. But let's start with the classifications. So we have baby boomers born between 1945 to 1964. Obviously, depending on um, which country you're talking about, but in the US, it's kind of 1964, 1965. And that's the demographic, let's not forget, that were the benefactors 
of the economic post-war boom. They were called the baby boom because they are a demographic phenomenon. They have yielded so much economic, political and and business power because there are so many of them, right? And yeah. and so in many respects, they were the, the benefactors of the economic boom in the post-war years. The benefactors as well, let's not forget, of the social liberalizing reforms that happened in the 70s and 80s. And then the benefactors of the economic liberal reforms that happened in the 1980s to the extent that in the U.S., it's been estimated that boomers hold about 70% of the nation's wealth. And as we know, they are the ones that are already disrupting what retirement looks like and what old age looks like. Many right. are continuing to stay and remain in the workplace. Many of them are embracing digital culture to the extent that obviously baby boomers are the fastest growing demographic on social media. Facebook is their playground, and it's been estimated that by 2050, profiles of the deceased on Facebook will outnumber profiles of the living. Wow. But that yeah. sounds quite morbid. But it speaks to the fact, I know Zuckerberg's about to inherit a mass digital graveyard, but the point is it speaks to the fact that boomers are actually embracing new technology. Okay, so this idea that they kind of are static and are still using analog devices is, is absolutely not true. You have the boomers and then you have the Gen Xers. Now, Gen X are the ignored generation in many respects in the shadow of the boomers, but they are critical for three important reasons. They were the demographic that saw women begin to outnumber men at university. And those professional women went into the workplace and really triggered the conversation that we're still having now about work-life balance. That's the demographic who were the first tech generation who had the Sony Walkman in their youth. Remember, that was the first piece of personalized technology. And then they became the Crackberry, Blackberry adults at yeah. work. They were the first ones to have technology in the workplace proper. And what's interesting is you look at the data on the lockdowns, it's Gen X who actually made the transition most successfully to fully remote working. And then actually they are also at the moment the squeezed generation, squeezed as they are between looking after their kids, remember parenting is now a 30 year financial commitment, and looking after their yeah. elderly parents in many respects and incidences. So you have that demographic Gen X who have been waiting in the wings a long time are now in the kind of C-suite and now kind of owning the businesses, making the key decisions, but at the heightened point of their caring responsibilities. And then you have millennials. Now, for a long time, we've been slagging millennials off and telling them how awful they are. And actually, we have to remember they're no longer young. They are hitting right. midlife. They are heading full into their 40s. They are fully aware they're no longer young because we have we are now managing Gen Zers. And the crucial thing to respect in respect to millennials is they're the in-betweeners. They're the ones that had a foot in the 20th century and all the aspirations and challenges of the 20th century and a foot in the 21st century, all the aspirations and challenges of the 21st. But they were the kids that were told if you go to school, get to college, that guaranteed pathway into middle class professional life will be open to you. And as we know, that promise, particularly in America, where it's, it's already becoming unraveled with you know, college debt forgiveness and all of that kind of stuff, is right. that promise was found wanton. And then they are the, the demographic that came of age with the smartphone. And what the smartphone did, of course, was create that fluidity between your work life and your play and leisure time. And of course, this is the generation, let's not forget, that are not just divided between those that went to college and those that did not, but between those that could rely on the bank of mum and dad and the safety net of mum and dad and those that could not. So you have with the millennials a delayed entry into adulthood, the delaying of education, delaying of staying at home, the delaying of buying a house, all of those things, which are partly response to economics, but also self-fulfillment. But also they have the set, they have had a reliance almost on mum and dad. So you have this tension between a sort of millennial demographic that went to college and didn't go to college or could rely on mum and dad and could not. And why that's significant for employers to understand is that you have within that demographic an inheritance economy where what you earn 
And what you learn in life is not as important as what you inherit. And that is a crucial difference to the boomers who did not inherit and could fulfill that American dream of working their way up and building a home, building a life, building a family and building and saving for retirement. That's not been a promise fulfilled for, for millennials. And then you have the demographic after them, Gen Z. They are the experimentals. They are true 21st century kids. They're the demographic who cannot remember the 20th century. Right. And any references you may have, whether it be um, 9-11, which was a history lesson in school for them, or 2008 crisis that they saw their parents go through, but they themselves didn't go through, is in a sense completely distance for this generation. And why they are critical, critically different from millennials is they are the social media kids who've had a smartphone in their pockets since they were 13, have had access to the world's information and yeah. the world's marketplace. And I cannot stress that enough, which means they are not surprised by anything you say, and they have the capacity to make money in other ways than a salary. It has been estimated that this generation will have over 15 different employers over the course of their working life and five different careers. Now, who makes up these predictions? I've no idea. But the point stands that this is the generation, I believe, that does not and will not believe in a one salary as financial security. So it's, it's a generation that I think are at the full throes of the disruption in technology and a slight skepticism that comes with technology, a savviness and an entrepreneurial spirit that comes from having a smartphone, a political and slight skeptical vision of the world because they've grown up at a time of populism, of um, of hypocrisy, of, of um, you know, uh, racial protests, BLM, um, climate change activism, you know, complete questioning of quite rightly in some respects, the social order that prevailed for the last half of the 20th century. And you have this generation of kids who really are disrupting the workplace because they are not necessarily holding on to the values that have gone before. And the reason they're not is because it's the job of every youth, every different generation to question what has gone before them. And they see millennials and they, in that demographic, they see a generation that's worked bloody hard and hasn't got as much as previous generations. And they're like, hang on a minute. I don't want that to be my future self. So they are questioning working culture in a different way. And I would just add one final point is that every generation is shaped by a pivotal experience in your youth, whether it was the sex and drugs and rock and roll of the 60s or the conscription in the 1940s. And what you have in Gen Z is a generation who has sacrificed two years, some places more, of their youth in order to secure the safety of the elderly in society. And that sacrifice was real, and it has meant that they are, have been most exposed to rising loneliness, mental health issues, and also real challenges in the workplace. Many of them were not working from home. They were working from bed, staring at a green dot for 12 hours a day, feeling increasingly disillusioned. So right. those are the four generations, each with very different stories. So, so something I think about um, is, is, a, is I've tried to read a lot on, on all kinds of DUI topics. Um, generally speaking, I think human beings, regardless of gender, race, uh, age, we're, we're more alike than we are different, but we, it, 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 it falls generally in classic bell curves, right? And so it, it, uh, there are some things that we can manage each other, both up and down and lateral and teams in the same ways, but uh, the shape of these bell curves, you know, there's overlap, but there's also the very real differences. So, so, so speak to the, speak to the, what are some of the things that you think that it's okay that this is, this is the way we've managed people or managed relationships or, or built successful teams forever? And, and what are the things that still do in fact work that are more tied to humanity versus what are the things on the edges of these bell curves where we kind of collide with each other in, in our, in our differences that, that create the challenges? 
That's a great question. And I think there's three things that every small to medium employer can do to satisfy basically all four generations. The first thing is give your workers a voice, but enable them to listen to each other. And I think one of the things that you're seeing with Gen Z is a generation that is just expecting to be heard. They're heard on social media, so they want to be heard in the office. So you have a generation that may not raise its voice politically in the workplace, but will raise its voice and expect to be heard. But what I think is really crucial, and by the way, that's something that all generations want. That's what human beings want. Most of all is to be listened to, particularly in hierarchical structures such as politics or the workplace. Can I expand on that? So, so I, mm. I, I, I completely mm. agree. And I think this is one of those, the areas where employers can get uh, tri- tripped up. Everyone I think has this desire and need to be heard and listened to different generations require mm-hmm. it. Right. So uh, my parents, uh, you know, yeah. b- b- boomerage, mm-hmm. my mom desperately wants to be listened to that. She also bites her tongue mm-hmm. probably more than she should uh, and sits quietly mm-hmm. not being listened to and tolerates it, where my daughter sure mm-hmm. as heck is not going to tolerate not being listened to, right? So uh, I, I think this – I love where you yeah. went there, the difference between a, a desire and what they require. Maybe that's one of these differences between the generations in some of these categories. I, I, I mean, I agree, but – to a certain extent, I would say that boomers have been heard a lot and are finding it definitely very difficult in being shouted out and sidelined by younger generations. I mean, I, you could you could see politics, uh, political situ- situations across the world where boomers have found a real difficulty in being silenced and not being heard as much as they used to. They are the first generation, by the way. I don't know what generation your mother is, but boomers were the first generation to really raise their voice as, you know, as a youthful movement in, in the 60s and 70s. And ever since, they've dominated the discussion, arguably. So I think I would, I would slightly disagree with you and say, actually, you've got generations now, we're living in this hyper-individualistic age where I would say that most uh, most people expect to be heard what they're really bad at and what bosses and um, companies need to really get behind is listening to each other and we've all become very bad at listening because our mobile phones are brilliant at telling us that we're right and everyone agrees with us and brilliant at hiding everything that doesn't fit with our worldview and actually what we really have to do is expose ourselves to things that don't sit well with us, that jar with our values, that are difficult to hear. And I think that in a way, in a work context, that's really important as it is in a political context, I would argue. So I would say the first thing is, is that, that dialogue. The second thing I would say, and again, this is something that Gen Z, I think, are so adept and and kind of knowing about but actually again it's something that all generations need and that's learning in the workplace now that can happen in a very structured formal way in a big corporate big multinational but actually best learning in the workplace happens through osmosis happens through observation happens with people just watching other people have difficult conversations with clients or negotiating a certain deal or you know, watching a sales pitch or developing a certain project. It's through watching. And one of the real problems I have with hybrid working is that so much of that learning is being lost. Now, that's not just to the benefit of young people. That is all generations now. If we're working longer, we are gonna have to upskill constantly to remain agile. And one of the things that I think is quite prevalent in most businesses is that learning happens to about the age of 35, 40, and then you're just assumed to know what you're doing. And actually one of the things that really has to happen if we're having, if we're going to manage an aging workforce is we have to be constantly upskilling that skilling, that aging demographic. And the third thing, and I think the pandemic has really shed a light on this. And again, this is not something that Gen Z is are, 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 you know, only talking about, I think it's something that would serve all generations, and that is care. 
And I use the word care rather than well-being because I think what we're seeing is is a desire for a rewriting of the social contract between employer and employee. I think mm-hmm. for a long we saw the instability of jobs and the breakdown of that job for life and that paternalistic responsibility that a boss had for their employees in the 80s. You saw that breakdown. You saw the breakdown of the pension schemes. You saw a much more, as a reaction, a much more agile, disloyal worker evolve. And actually, what the pandemic, I think, has highlighted is a need for and a desire for companies to demonstrate their care. Now, that can take a number of forms. That can mean financial care and support, obviously in rising inflation, cost of living, potential recession uh, times. It can mean well-being in the sense that not what resources are you are you providing for my mental health, but actually how are you impacting my mental health because of the email culture that you have or because of the toxic management culture that exists. Or it can manifest itself in providing care or enabling me as a worker to care and perform my caring responsibilities. So whether it's, um, are you helping me with childcare? Are you helping me with maternity or paternity leave? Are you helping me with elder care? Because we're in an aging society and we need to look after our elderly relatives. I think care is a a kind of catch-all term that goes and speaks to a desire that all generations have which is, do I actually feel that my employers care about me and care about me in the round, not care if I can perform my duties, not care if I meet some metrics, but actually know who I am, know what is going on in the background of my life, know how I can best perform these duties and demonstrates that care, not in an automated way, but in a personal human humane way that demonstrate that human connection yeah that we all crave through our work <clears throat> I, I love that and, I, and I, I think about uh i think about the latitude this is gonna, i think of a way that doesn't <laughs> sound stupid but i think about the latitude a manager has for their man different management styles when they when they demonstrate how much they care, right? So if, if you can't, if, if, if your employee doesn't vibe on your empathy and they don't feel like you care, you're not, I believe you're not going to get as much latitude as being like, Oh, I don't like this about their style. This is wrong about their approach. They made me come to the office here or this is how we run meetings and this is how decisions are made versus I think people will give each other a lot of grace when they know the other person deeply cares. It's like, you know, my, my old football coach, right. you know, he might, he might scream and yell at me like crazy. And I might think, dude, you're wrong. And I don't like being yelled at, but I know this guy would go to the mats for me. Right. And he's only doing this because he wants us right. to win as a team. Right. And it, I, 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 I right. That, that may be one of these uh, little red threads that kind of can weave through the generations for all of us to manage as, is high potentials and the younger generations manage up and older people manage down is simply genuinely authentic empathy and caring about the outcomes as right and do you know do you know what mike you've you've alluded something there that uh, made me really think profoundly about you talking about your football coach you know that was such a human relationship that was based on humanity and that was about you know testing your resilience it was about getting the best out of you that was about camaraderie in the team that was about earning respect not expecting it to be automated and and already there i think the thing that where we have gone wrong is over the last 20 to 30 years we have sought to turn humans into robots and weirdly robots into humans <laughs> and actually what we need we're to definitely do trying to do an that age of automation <laughs> an age of right an age of automation and an age of ai is go hang on a minute where's the humanity in work and the humanity in work is in really being demonstrating that care showing that that human commitment and and um 
diligence and and I think personalization in particularly management style, I would say leadership style requires probably something different. But when we're talking about management, one of the interesting things I've seen with companies is the ones that have the most successful, flexible working policies are not the ones that have kind of like a top heavy line. Okay, you come into the office two days a week, three days a week, or that idea of a centralized working policy is inherently inflexible, right? The best flexible working policies I've seen are ones that operate completely autonomously within small teams of say no more than 15 to 20, where they say, okay, do you know what? My, I'm doing this and I've got to do this, but you're going to be in the office here and you really stepped up um, for me on this moment. So I'm going to step up for you on this and I'm going to, that sense of social obligation and reciprocal responsibility to you have to others to be in the room when they need you and for them to be in the room when they you know need you need them and i think the the it, again it goes back to the humanity of work is that that really is at the heart of it what keeps people loyal committed and belonging is that okay do i feel a sense that i'm cared for and understood and that's not about me. HR policies. And if anything, small businesses are more equipped to do that than big ones. I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this. You're, you're striking on something for me here. It's, it's And I'm, I'm thinking it's this notion of have to versus get to. Um, the, I mean, so, like, the, the data is really, really clear on uh, the uh, annual uh, employee engagement studies, right? <clears throat> and, and there's a barbell mm-hmm. of uh, employees who – must work in an office, and this, this is pre-pandemic, um, but employees who must come to the office um, and work five days of work versus employees who are, uh, by definition, a virtual job and don't have an office to go to versus those employees mm-hmm. who have a choice and they can come and go as they please. Um, the employees' full-time office and full-time home are equally disengaged. The most engaged employees are those that have the most flexibility. And as I think about it, um, how much of this is a function of choice, right? If I, I can't force my spouse to love me, but the fact that it is her choice is what makes it, <laughs> at least I think she does. I love her. It, 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 it's, it's that freedom to fail for the, the freedom of the choice that might choose nice. something you don't want, but, it's, that's what makes the relationship special. As soon as there's, you know, I, I, right. when it's I a mean, choice. I mean, actually, choose- Mike, I mean, you're, well, you're eminently lovable. The thing actually you've hit the nail on the head there is like almost like the, the working arrangement was like a, an arranged marriage, right? Yeah. Is that you, there was a certain level of coercion, a certain level of coercion. And what the pandemic did was it i mean people talked about flexibility i think that's wrong i think it gave people a sense of autonomy which is actually yes. more powerful yes. than flexibility right? i agree and completely. the thing that it did is it is it gave people a, a, a and i think it reconfigured their relationship with time time they weren't having those water cooler moments with their colleagues they were having them with their kids i mean chaotic as they were they were having them with their kids it changed people's relationship with their home their health you know um their family and i'm not saying it wasn't difficult and obviously experience hugely varied during the pandemic but for a lot of people particularly in white collar jobs there was a recalibration of how people were spending that time and the control they had over that time and that, unfortunately, a lot of things in history cannot be undone. And I do believe that experience of the pandemic, because it was so prolonged and intense, cannot just be um, undone and cannot we cannot see a return to normal. So anyone out there is listening, thinking, you know, a recession, that'll get people back into work, that'll get people back into the office. I don't think it will. I hear a lot of CEOs really across the world saying, you know, I, I think this will be the moment where people go back to the office. I actually don't think it will. You're it, The opposite. I think people will start going, I can't afford to go to the office. But I think, you know, for a real, for a real time, the pandemic was a liberating moment. 
you know, they could rip off the corporate chains, rip off the lanyard <laughs> and yeah. declare yeah. themselves free. Yeah. I, I think uh, certainly the next generation behind Gen Z, but certainly the, 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 definitely the younger uh, end of, of Gen Z, they're all about exercising choice. I have an employee, uh, no longer an employee. Uh, he, he was awesome. He was, a, he was a, a sales development rep. He got promoted into a sales job. He was doing great. And he saved every penny he made for the two years he worked for us so that he could travel around the country. He quit his job and he's traveling around the country because what he values is accumulating life experiences right now. Right. And, and that, Mm-hmm. That's not about flexibility. That's about freedom of choice, right? In, in getting to, to to do what mm-hmm. we want to do. Mm-hmm. And he may be farther on this end of the spectrum from from most people. Not everybody's going to just quit their job and travel for a year, but it certainly speaks to the to the mindset. And and, and what's behind it really is the ultimate freedom, right? Freedom right. of choice. And I think we also right. And I think there's. I think the point here is what we're saying is that there's no one size fits all. And what having access to the world's information and the world's marketplace in your pocket since you you were 13 has done to a generation is that it's opened up the level of choice. I mean, when I started, you know, I started my first job, I was working in a shoe shop, shining shoes, right? And (laughs) I had no idea. I had no idea what my friends were doing at that particular point, right? When I started my first office job, which was working in a call center, we sort of had the internet, but didn't have social media. I had no idea what my friends were doing at that particular point. Now, when you get to Gen Z, you have a generation that are, um, have made a lot of their own uh, money before they enter the workplace, whether it's buying and selling secondhand clothes or creating content or doing online tutoring, whatever it is, they've had the capacity to do that in non-traditional ways. So they're not working in bars in the same way or, or you know, doing cleaning or sh- retail. And then they get to the workplace and they're kind of like, there's no allure. There's no romance. There's no like impressive kind of, oh, this is really good because actually they've already either been making their own money or they've seen other people do it at the same time. So this is the first generation that is going to work, you know, working in an office or working either from home, going on social media and going, oh, that's what other people are doing. That looks more interesting. That looks more glamorous. Oh, maybe I should go on a camper van tour of California. That looks really cool. Or maybe I should save up all my money and invest it in crypto. That looks really cool. Or that constant like comparative culture, right. which we just didn't have when we started work. So that the deference and the allure of work holds no traction for this generation. And that's very difficult for older generations to understand because they're like, Look, you get into this company, you're lucky to be here. You put up, you shut up, you work your way up just like I did. And that's just not how Gen Z, quite rightly, I would argue, are computing and understanding the world. Can, I want to shift gears for a second, if I could, Eliza. So I'm imagining I'm a, I'm a small business owner watching this show. And I've got uh, 18 employees. Um, uh, and so I, I, I ha- I'm big enough that I have plenty of challenges, but I'm, but I'm small enough. I don't face these macro uh, I- issues. Right. And I'm like, you know, screw generations. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I'm not uncaring, but I'm just, these are my standards. This is how we run the company. Um, and so this mm-hmm. is the type of talent we attract. This is the type of talent we retain. And they end up with this homogenous, group, whether it's age, gender, whatever, um, can you speak to the actual business impact in the value of age diversity? Like how does it, so, so maybe, maybe a business that doesn't have an age diverse workforce, why would they even want to seek one out despite the whole labor shortage and I need to just get people? Okay. So there's, there's two major problems here is you are, eavesdropping on the future and it's the source of innovation by employing young people that's just i would argue a fact and you will short sight your comp company if you do not have the wealth of experience that comes with age 
I mean, if you look at tech, for example, tech is one of those sectors that has a very, very low, low diversity in terms of age. It has low diversity in terms of gender, but really in terms of age. And so actually one of the major problems within tech, I think, is they do not have someone putting up their hand going, oh, my God, I went through the dot com crash. We don't want to go there. Like, can we pivot this way? You haven't got that wealth of experience, I would argue, in tech, which is perhaps why you see potential car crashes and careering in certain directions. I think if you are a small business of 18 or so people and you are thinking, what's this generational stuff got to do with me? I think you have to recognize that in particularly engaging with young people, you are securing the long term future of your business because it's not just your diversity that you're going to see in your employees it's the diversity in your client base or your customer base so in order to have that diverse range and just have those conversations with those clients you have to be reflective of society that's the first thing i think though it's really important for small businesses to go do you know what this is what we do and this is who we need to execute it And I'm not going to try and be something I'm not. I'm not going to be chasing, you know, Gen Z influencer wannabes because that's not what my business is about. We make crates or something. And and actually what I need to be is authentically me, authentically this business. And actually one of the things that Gen Z really responds to, I think, is honesty, transparency and authenticity. They don't want to be missold a job. They don't want to be missold a position or a business. So actually going, look, the people that work here have to be in the office three days a week, quite often have to be here past six, quite often have to be on site, quite often have to be doing this, laying it out. And in a way, actually, Goldman Sachs is brilliant at this. Goldman Sachs is one of those companies, you know, you will earn shed loads of money and you know, you will not see your family doing it. So, you know, that honesty is refreshing. Because what we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is arguably a lot of mis-selling corporate cultural purpose, you know, shiny logos, shiny values and all of this. And actually, it's the honesty and authenticity and the upfrontedness that young people in particular really respond to. I would also say that the interview and application process is absolutely crucial because what you need more than anything else is not skills, is value alignment. I and love I that. would argue that those the skills should be taught in the business. Don't expect people to come with those skills established like we've always done throughout history companies are the education the idea that university or school provides us with educated skilled skilled workforce is actually rubbish what's clear is that businesses have to have to have that apprenticeship culture so don't hire on skills hire on values and i was working with a you know a a legal firm in london not long ago and one of the things that a partner said to me was i cannot understand why people are applying to our company because we've had so many people leave to start side hustles to start cupcake businesses to develop their dancing skills to go traveling to do all this and I was like the thing I think is key is that perhaps they never wanted to be lawyers in the first place and actually they were sold a career that maybe wasn't that maybe had the status that they were looking for but not actually was the right career for them. So that's why the interview process has to be an interrogation of values, not of skills or experience. I love that. So we, we've talked on the show with other guests before uh, it, about attracting the right talent. And, and, the, and the, 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 the key there is the right talent because you could attract people that have the skills to perform the job, but if they're not aligned to, to your values they're not gonna stay they're gonna be disengaged they're either gonna quit or they're not gonna perform and it's gonna end badly for both of you so much much better and and let well and mike i mean sorry to interrupt sorry to interrupt there but there's there's i sit on a board of a business um here in the uk and one of the things that we were looking at was how do you turn your analog 
um, workers into digital workers because digital talent now is at such a premium and is so expensive. It's you are in a war for talent, but it's all about the money and not about the values and not finding the right the right people. So it's we were sort of discussing actually, can you really upskill the people from analog to digital? And therefore, you've invested in them, and hopefully that will be rewarded in loyalty. Because one of the things that I think is really true in tech is that they are not going for values alignment. They are going for money. And because they're in such high demand, they are moving around at such pace. And I'll piggyback on tech. I, I think money, yes, but I, I, what, something we see just in our own business is if you're an engineer, if you're not getting paid, you want to at least be setting yourself up to get paid and learning new skills, right? It's the it's solving mm-hmm. really difficult problems and developing the skill of problem solving, developing the skill of of the latest tech. So, um, it, it, I, I, I want to kind of. But that's, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say every company, every company is now a tech company. I mean, even my company. I'm a historian. I mean, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with data now. I'm looking at the data of posts and articles and et cetera, et cetera. It, every company is now a data company. Every company has a responsibility to upskill their workers and then won't be able to afford to buy that talent in. There's not enough of it and it's at too a higher premium. So I've kind of written down here three big buckets of ways uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I want to recap on this and I want to just maybe wrap today with some practical advice about how to attract different generations in ways that people might not be thinking about. But you talk, we talked quite a bit about the differences between the four different generations and the the differences are real. And if you don't think they are, they they are. And so, so, so please understand that, but also coming back to, as human beings, we're more alike than we are different. So there are some strategies that mm. cut through all this. Uh, and, and this might sound right. silly, but I think it's real and practical. Number one is simply caring, right? It's empathy. It's caring in your employees or your bosses or your peers will give you a lot of grace when they know the why you're doing what you're doing. And if you if they feel and sense that you care, mm. you're going to cut through a lot of a lot of those things. Number two is to develop. People need and want to grow, whether it's stretch assignments, acquiring new skills. Um, some people care about money, uh, and so they need new skills to get even more money. Some people don't care about money. Uh, it's all about the challenge. In all cases, development of skills solves all those problems, right? And then the last one you just kind of talk about is values and value alignment. When, uh, you know, I, I suspect Elon Musk is not a terribly easy person person to work for, but you know, if you if your mission <laughs> in life is to help put people on, on on Mars, you know you know where you go work, right? Uh, and so, uh, if if right, your values right. are all about work life balance and taking care of children, that looks a whole heck of a lot different than it does if you're trying to put somebody on Mars. It, it, in 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 what that work looks like looks very different. But there's value alignment mm-hmm. between employer and employee, right? So, so I love all that. Right? Can you can you just give our, our audience some some practical advice? Okay, we've convinced them you can be a more productive uh, organization. You're gonna you're, you're you're building a company of the future by hiring younger generations. You're being wise by not ignoring older generations because they've they've seen these paths before. They can see around corners for you. I believe you. I need to go recruit and have better diversity of age. What are the things that employers can do to achieve that? Okay, number one is I would basically have the generations collide as much as you possibly can and listen to each other. Listen on a really personal level is what it was like to be the first woman in in the company or what it was like to grow up with a smartphone in your pocket. and and help create that empathy and that generational understanding. Number two, I would think about education as a democratic skill swap across the generations rather than just old informing the young. So one of the things that they do in France, for example, is that they deliberately within companies match up those um, employees 
who are over 50 with those that are under 30. And actually the idea is to mirror, this is best done if you mirror within the family, the grand, grandparents and grandchild than the parents and child. Because if you have a bigger age gap actually within the workplace, that can often be more fertile way of mentoring and cross dialogue and education because you do not have that perhaps tension or um, ego or a slight conflict as you do with the parent child. So actually making the age gap bigger with that reverse mm -hmm. mentoring, that mentoring relationship, I think is really important. The third thing I would do is, is really actually is give, give the different generations a voice and enable them in an informal or a formal way to really understand that everyone's at a different life stage. And so what, what things need to be taken into consideration within this company, because we are an age diverse team that have different issues going on, whether it's, I need to go and look after my mum in, in a um, care home once every Tuesday, or I need to actually make sure that my dog gets a walk on Friday afternoon, whatever it is, I think one of the, one of the key ways of bringing the generations together is in a co-creating format in which we can all sit down and go, do you know what? This is what our lives look like. We're all different ages. That feels very different. We are living diff different experiences. What is it that the company needs or possibly can do to accommodate that? But crucially, what do we all need to understand and empathize with in order to just take that into account as colleagues. I think that's a perfect place to wrap. As I really enjoyed talking to you today. Is, is, is there a way that uh, you'd like to ask our audience or offer, offer how, how is it you help your clients and, and, and companies or employees? How, how could we help, help you help them? So I spend a lot of my time helping companies really tackling their specific challenges with a multi-generational workforce in the hybrid era, helping them understand the different generations. So I do a lot of um, course-based work on bridging the generation gap, but also on a policy level, what, what specific initiatives need to happen. I run an um, online course. I also have a fortnightly newsletter, which you, is free to subscribe. Go to www.elizaphilby.com. I also have my own podcast on the future of work with a it's called The Shift with Jimmy McLaughlin and Eliza Philby. And yeah, stay in touch via my website and on my socials. Thank you. So Thanks we'll, for we'll be sure and pop up an exit form for anybody watching this live. Uh, <laughs> uh, that if you want to get in contact with Eliza, that uh, we'll create that opportunity. And uh, if you're watching this on our YouTube, check the uh, check the the links. We'll have a link to Eliza's site on the on the bottom. So uh, th these are complex issues. This is what Assure is here to do, right? So the purpose of this show is to share the very best information we possibly can with employers. Uh, and I, one of the things I, maybe I love and I hate about HR, uh, it, it, it's so sometimes focused on compliance. It's the legalistic. It's the Title VII discrimination versus how, what is the actual value of building diverse teams, right? And so we, we always play two sides of this, uh, this coin where – uh, uh, what we do as a company is we help small businesses stay compliant in an ever-changing world where federal laws become state laws, become local city laws. Uh, it, it's, it's extremely complex, so we can help unpack that. But mostly what we care about, it's, it's, it's in the name, human resources. What is, how do you tap into the resources of the human and see, see, the, see that human as, as a capital? How can you how can you more intelligently deploy mm -hmm. that capital by building great teams? So if there's anything we can do at Assure to help uh, help you with that uh, audience, uh, we'd, we'd be happy to do so as well. Uh, until next week, uh, Eliza, love talking to you. Uh, this was a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, we'd love thanks, to do it Mike. again someday. And uh, thanks to everybody else until next week. Mm -hmm.